Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, and as always, I'm joined by Billy, and we have someone else in the room today, well, virtually in the room, our new director of wine, Adam LaPierre is joining us on the call today. And we're really excited to introduce Adam. He brings a lot to our team. We'll let him introduce himself a little bit more as we get into this episode. But we have a great June shaping up on the Vint platform. We have a lot of awesome collections that we're about to announce shortly uh, around the time that this episode launches. There should be a little bit more information out into our community about our upcoming collections. But Certainly stay tuned to that. We had our best month ever in terms of collection sellouts and total dollar amounts sold last month, which is really great for us as a business and excellent for our investors as well as we continue to roll out new and unique collections. Certainly Adam will help us to continue to do that on a more regular basis and with hopefully better pricing and uh, better potential returns for our investors in the long run. So Adam, do you want to just give kind of a high-level overview of how you got involved with Vint early on, especially as an advisor and now uh, full-time on our team. Definitely. Um, happy to happy to be here, Brady and, and Billy, and really excited to be joining the, the Vint team full-time. I have I actually was introduced to Nick a little over a year ago, Nick King, the CEO, and we had some discussions about my background and what they were what, what Vint was trying to do, the vision for Vint. And Nick asked me to join as an advisor on the wine committee, helping the team to identify collection concepts, to uh, source wines, and then just to provide some general background and expertise in the wine space, because he came up from a financial background and didn't really have uh, depth of knowledge in the wine space. So started working in that regard on the wine committee. And yes, as, as the year transpired and, and as the team and, and the business continued to grow, I was just very excited to be part of it. And then about two months ago, he told me that the team was looking to expand and, and, and he invited me to join full-time, which I'm, I'm thrilled about. Yeah, no, we we're, we're really excited to have you. I think when I first started, I actually called Adam... And when I was considering working for Vint, so Adam actually convinced me to work for Vint, and then we kind of turned the tables uh, later this year. But I, I've never actually heard how have you, how did you get connected with Nick in the first place? Because I feel like we got to talk to Miles when we were in London, and it seems like he gets connected with these people in the most either roundabout ways or just kind of shooting out on LinkedIn. Yeah, it was actually through through Kevin Sitters from VinConnect, who was also one of the early advisors. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Kevin made the connection between Nick and Don St. Pierre, who uh, is one of the owners of Vinfolio, which is the company that I'd worked for. Don asked me to engage with Nick to learn about the business and to provide some information. So we just had a had a, a brief call and yeah, just just really connected and 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 again the the vent mission resonated and i think uh at that point nick understood or, or thought that i could add some value by being a part of the uh, the wine committee yeah that's awesome kevin is still on our wine committee which is also we'll have to have him on the podcast brady because he's uh quite the interesting fellow as well 
But uh, yeah, so taking a couple steps back, then could you give us a little bit of background on your your life in the world of wine and and how you ended up at Vinfolio before arriving at Vint? Sure, I basically worked in the wine business for for my entire adult life, and I won't go all the way back to the beginning. But basically, I've worked uh, at, in a lot of different areas of the wine industry. I've worked I worked at a winery in in sales basically managing the distribution of their products across the United States. The winery that I worked at was very successful commercially, but was, I wouldn't put them in the top tier of quality, but it was a great proving ground for me. One, the winemaker was extremely knowledgeable. So it was a great opportunity for me to learn a lot about the science of wine and and wine production. And he also was extremely generous. He had a, a fantastic seller. And he would often bring bottles in for the seller team to taste. We would do blind tasting. So it was a great way to learn about wine. And in that role, because the wines that I was struggling to sell, again, weren't really the top tier, I I found that I needed to bolster my credentials in wine because I wanted to be able to talk as a peer with sommeliers and with, with buyers and retail. So I uh, was introduced to the WSET program. And started studying for the WSCT and eventually passed different levels of, of those qualifications until I attained the WSCT diploma. And so for those that don't know, the WSCT is the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. It's more or less like the gold standard for wine education globally. Their top qualification was the diploma. So after a few years of studying and passing the different levels, I obtained the WSCT diploma. And then the next thing I set my sights on was the Master of Wine qualification. When I decided to enter the Master of Wine program, I also needed to change jobs because I needed to have broad exposure to many wines from the world. So I joined uh, an import company and worked for uh, a national importer managing their portfolio. They worked with three dozen family-owned producers, very prestigious producers around the world studied for the Master of Wine, eventually passed that in 2013. And after that, I transitioned to retail grocery. I worked for a large retail grocer called Lidl, which is one of the largest retailers in the year in the world, <clears throat> and uh, managed setting up their product assortment in the United States, their supply chain. Did that for a number of years, and then started with Vinfolio about four years ago. And Vinfolio is a company that was really focused on the collectible fine wine space. So the, the best wines in the world, investment grade wines. And that's really where I gained a lot of experience and knowledge in the categories of wines that we're working with at Mint. That's cool. I, I really like that you kind of have run the gamut between, you know, working in, in so many different uh, sectors of the, the wine world, you know, in uh, super commercialized I assume high volume production all the way to, you know, these blue chip collectibles, you know, both consumer facing wines and like collector, you know, high net worth individual, maybe more facing sales conversations and stuff like that too. I think that's really cool that you have kind of been all over the place there. What was it, if you could, if you zoom out and think about which aspect of that journey was maybe the most influential in terms of the way that you view wine for yourself, not necessarily as a career, but just, uh, for yourself, was it times that you spent speaking with winemakers? Was it in you know sales meetings and conversations? Was it curating collections for grocery store consumption? 
what has kind of shaped the way that you view the wine world the most, do you think? Yeah, it's it's very difficult to to point at to point to one of those experiences as more as more relevant or influential than another. I think they've all been really useful in just sort of crafting my my view. But I think, you know, one of the things that was very cool in my first role at the winery was really being uh having these sort of humble beginnings and being able to try to make wine and explain wine in a very accessible way to the average consumer and just to be be very much in touch with consumers who enjoy wine as an everyday beverage as a way of just sort of enhancing their quality of life on, on a daily basis and that's part of their life when i worked for the importer i think to your point brady the you know that connection to the producer was really something that resonated with me i got to travel a lot meet these families that have been making wine for many generations and sort of learn that and, and sort of got that a different approach, that different point of view, the, the human element as it relates to winemaking. And also just a, a more global perspective around wine. With Lidl, uh, very interesting company because it's very large, very process oriented, very commercially savvy. And so that was really useful just sort of informing my, you know, my, my approach commercially and, and as it relates to business. And then with Vinfolio, it was really like, again, the top wines of the world, the global wine trade, as it relates to these, you know, just the highest quality of wines out there and really getting, getting access to that universe, that very exclusive network of suppliers, producers, and consumers. So all very unique. And I think all sort of crafted my, my general approach. I would say one of the things that I continue to strive towards is to to make wines accessible for people to communicate in a you know in a very plain spoken way and to try to strip away a lot of the pretense and that's one of the things obviously I love about Vint as well it's you know that this is the mission and and so that really resonates with me. Nice. That's that's really that was a really good question, Brady. By the way, before I even dive in, but that, that I love the accessibility point of view because I, I think that your note and the humbling point as well is at the very beginning humble beginnings but I think to me I always say there's nothing more humbling than working in wine because there's always something you don't know a lot of mm-hmm. things you don't know um, and things like that but I love totally. the, I love the accessibility point as well because like it, it's really hard to try to explain something and in the context of the person who needs to hear it or like what, what you're trying to explain. So everybody has a different goal and being able to explain it to the different subsets. Maybe it's like your friend who's just looking for a good bottle of wine for the weekend, or it's, you know, all the way to people like we interact with the event who are saying, why is this a good investment? Being able to clearly and concisely say why something's good or, and why your recommendation is good is, um, it's very difficult. It's something I'm still obviously striving, striving to myself. So I think that's a, a great point of yours. Yeah, it can be. It's a it's a very complex subject matter, as you're as you said, Billy, and 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 I think being able to distill that that complexity into very very clear features and and it or as it relates to wine as investment, the rationale behind a particular collection and why we source these wines, why we think they make sense as an investment. Trying to distill that down into a few very 
know, very reasonable, very logical assumptions and, and, and convey that information can really be, be, be difficult because it is such a complicated um, product. And, you know, I definitely agree with you about the humbling nature of wine because it is so complex. It's evolving there. It's, it's subjective and it's objective and there are many points of view and you can never really know it all. I mean, people think of masters of wine as being the, you know, these encyclopedias where all of the, you know, all the knowledge around the subject is, 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 is housed. But the reality is I've forgotten a lot and I'm learning a lot and I'm wrong a lot. And that's part of the process of wine, I guess, education and, and, and attaining wisdom or mastery in any subject is sort of ultimately being confronted with what you don't know or, or the limitations um, of one individual to know everything and, and being able to kind of make peace with that. Have you, yeah. oh, oh, sorry, ahead, go ahead, Brady. All right. I was just going to say, bu- building on the, the wine notes though, transitioning myself from the quartermaster sommeliers over to the wine or the W set kind of track. It, it's really interesting that the different focuses, and I, I only went to certified on the CMS mm-hmm. But with with the the broader focus of the W set and kind of that more business mindset as well, have you had times where you're talking to to master psalms where they're really like really distinct differences? Like what from your point of view, what do you think? You know, once you get to the end of that track, what the differences in your knowledge base, kind of just the format of the knowledge base might be? Yeah, well, I I think that obviously the master sommelier qualification is heavily oriented towards the restaurant business, right? Mm-hmm. So the examination is much different. It is, uh, it's a verbal examination. There's a restaurant component of it, service component, I mean. And so a lot of historically what they're, it's been very oriented around knowledge, but also a, a strong component of memorization of regions of producers of vineyards. And, and the tasting component is very oriented around identification. The master of wine, and again, I've I've done some of them. They, I've done the certified master sommelier qualification as well. So that 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 is really the extent of my knowledge there around the program. But the MW is more around as it relates to the written exam. Certainly more around like global knowledge of of wine, both in viticulture and in winemaking, and also the global business of wine. So I think the subject matter is much more broad on the theory side. And then on the tasting side, there is a, it is blind tasting. It's three times the number of wines um, for the MW exam and the MS exam. But the focus is certainly about identification to a certain extent, but also it's about understanding quality in the glass and understanding how winemaking impacts style in the glass as well. So, you know, it's very possible to miss the identity of a wine in an MW exam, but to ultimately pass the questions asked because they're more geared towards quality or style. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I always just think about that when I'm when I see certain MSs in certain roles and just knowing that they're, you know, maybe it's in a business function, maybe it's it's in a in a, a role that may be more business forward. And to me, I, I've the more I've learned about the different programs, the more I found it interesting that I think a MW are going down the W set route positions you better for, you know, different categories outside of the restaurant scene. It's, it's interesting to see how people from the court can, you know, kind of integrate into the different jobs. So thanks for yeah. that context. Yeah. I think, um, 
I think the uh, MSs, you know, obviously there are many that are successful in many different areas, but obviously the idea of a sommelier is working in the restaurant. So that is the the foundation of of the exam and and obviously where many of those, many of them come from as they enter the program, whereas the MW, extremely broad, you can find MWs pretty much in every sector of the wine space from technical winemaking to the wine trade, to journalism, to viticulture, to all of the above. So it's, it's MWs are like kind of permeate the, the industry and maybe a, a bit more of a, you know, just a bit more broadly than the MS community may. One thing I like to think about is how do we introduce the wine industry to different types of consumers um, and not only consumers, but collectors as well. And maybe investors who aren't as interested in wine. For me, it always helps to think about, you know, maybe it's storytelling or introducing the person to an aspect of the industry that they haven't thought about before. What's kind of your in- entry point or the number one thing that you would like people to know about wine that you feel like gets them gets them hooked and starts that conversation. Yeah, okay. So I think you know, very generally one of the things that I try to convey to people and give folks confidence around is as as consumers is ultimately trusting their preferences as it relates to what they consume. I think there again wine is it can be an it's subjective, of course, and you can have sort of objective measures of quality, but those objective measures are ultimately determined by, determined by an individual. And I guess one of the things that I run into a lot is the is folks don't have confidence around their own their own preferences or or what they like or don't like. And so I always try to when I'm teaching people about wine or talking about tasting wine for quality is to provide some framework for how quality can be defined in wine, but ultimately making sure that folks, giving folks permission to like what they like, regardless of, of those measures of quality, right? I think that's something that just a, a lot of pe- folks feel intimidated around is sort of what they like and how that, how other people perceive what they like. As it relates to wines as an investment, of course, obviously, I think the, the everyday consumer, they may not have exposure to collectible fine wines, may not even understand the potential of inve- of wine as an investment. So, you know, really providing data around the use case of wine as an asset class that is investable is something that obviously is quite new to folks that might just pick up a bottle or two at the grocery store and, and that's their exposure, right? Wine is a beverage for them. So many don't even think of it in that in that context. For a collector of fine wine, one of the things that I try to explain is the fact that well, even with collectible wines that will improve with age, there's still only a subset of those wines that I would actually consider investment grade because investment grade, obviously for me, one of the key considerations is price appreciation over time. So if you think of the world of wine, obviously like 98% of that wine that's made is meant to be consumed young. So of that 2% that might actually improve with age, then there's even a smaller subset that actually has been proven to appreciate in value over time. And so I think with collectors, again, sort of parsing that out a little bit is something that could be useful for them. That's really great. That's good. Those are good answers. Yeah. I mean, we certainly see 
you know, producers that mark up back vintage or library wines when they sell them, you know, maybe directly from their winery. And that price appreciation maybe isn't the same that we're looking for as investors, right? Which that the price appreciation we want to see on the secondary market is more what we're looking for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just keeping more on the generally wine nerdy route, are there any regions that you've been drinking more of lately? Maybe not not for investment purposes, but just going through a phase of enjoying? <laughs> yeah, I think, well, <clears throat> at home, we drink a lot of sparkling wine. That's pretty much our go-to. And obviously, we love champagne. So we drink champagne when we can. But we also drink, my wife loves, she loves natural wines. She loves Pet Nat and some of the more esoteric types of wines out there. So we've been drinking a fair amount of like Pet Nat from California and, and other places um, as a more affordable alternative to champagne, you know, on, uh, during the week. I also really like sparkling Vouvray, which is, so Vouvray is produced in the Loire Valley of France. And they make a sparkling wine that's made using the champagne method, but it's made using Chenin Blanc grapes. And I really love that because it's it's just a great value, great value proposition as compared to champagne, but has a lot of the same characteristics. So that's kind of my, would be my budget sparkling bottle as well. Outside of sparkling wine, like, I mean, I'm a Francophile for sure, love French wines. But I really love Brunello as well. Brunello is a kind of one of my go-tos. I think great value, age-worthy. It's made with Sangiovese. And just you can get, it strikes a really nice balance between like that ripe fruit that you might find in New World wines, wines from uh, warmer climates like California, but also has some of that complexity, earthiness, and and structure that you would find in in wines of Italy and France. So it really it strikes a nice balance for me. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. How would how would you compare just for people looking at the the more value sparkling in general like a good cava that might be like 14 to 15 to 20 and compared to like a Vouvray about the same price point like what would you in terms of flavor profile? Yeah, so I don't drink a ton of cava. It's I find cava pretty interesting, and I think it very much depends on the producer and the bottling. Cava is made with these indigenous Spanish varieties, and as a result, has a very distinctive uh, flavor profile, which can be. It's I think I find it a bit more neutral than like a sparkling Vouvray, for example. So just a bit more neutral aromatically, and maybe not maybe a little more on the earthy side, I would say. Whereas like the sparkling Vouvray tends to have these like bruised apple notes, again, to get pretty geeky, I guess, which is a, a, characteristic, a characteristic of the Chenin Blanc grape. And that to me sort of it, it, it is reminiscent of champagne, of mature champagne that's been aged on the yeast for a long period of time. So, you know, for me, if I'm looking for a champagne analog, I think like a sparkling Vouvray is much closer than a, than a cava. But, but I've also had delicious cavas out there. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we're running up on time here in a little bit. So we'll, we'll have to talk offline about your, your favorite pet nats and other natty wines because that tends to be what we drink mostly it. in my household too. So cool. Well, All Brady, right. is there any other bit news we want to wrap up and 
Yeah, uh, I, I, say, I will say that. We'll, yeah, I was just gonna say, well, we'll have Adam on regularly here, guys. So we're not, not just cutting it short, but you'll hear plenty from Adam on for updates on the wines and and what we're doing on the wine stuff for Vinside soon. So, yeah, I would just, say to, just say to our listeners to uh, stay tuned as we make a few changes to the Vint website. You'll see some changes to our portfolio page and and just to the website in general over this next uh, month. And also to stay tuned for our next batch of collections that we have releasing here in June. Like I said, we should have some information out in public by the time this episode launches on Monday of next week. So yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Adam, for taking the time to join us today. And welcome. we'll, We'll see you soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vent and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.